I came here in mind to preach on Matthew 12, but now I just want to camp out on, yes, he did, so yes, he can. That'll preach, won't it? Maybe another sermon another day. Whew. The theme of today, we're going to be in Matthew chapter 12. Matthew chapter 12, we're going to start in verse 22. I, I don't know if you've ever been struck by something or seen something and your thought was, man, how did he do it? How did he do it? You ever stand beside some beautiful architecture in medieval Europe and think, how'd they do it? I was sent a video recently of a young boy who set a new world record. He was juggling, no big deal. He was juggling three things, no big deal. The three things weren't balls, they were cubes, no big deal. They were Rubik's cubes, no big deal. Each time it landed in his hand, he was twisting it slightly and solving three Rubik's cubes while juggling them. Big deal. That's right. Big deal. I remember watching that thing. It did it in like three minutes something. I remember thinking, how'd he do it? How'd he do it? I'm watching it. I'm seeing it. I know he's doing it. I'm going, how'd he do it? Back in April, I read an article about a man who set a new world record for a marathon, fastest marathon. I thought, that's unusual. Usually that makes big news. Not just, oh, this was a little article. Big news. It was set in London. I thought, that's unusual. Normally the world record for marathon is not set in London. That's because the world record for marathon, you read the fine print, world record for fastest marathon while carrying a refrigerator. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Now, the correct response is, how'd he do it? This will tell you something about the guys I run with in my running group. I told them that story. One of them goes, well, how big was the fridge? <laughs> Doesn't sound like a runner question. That sounds like a CrossFit question, but not a runner question. The point is, is all these things, no matter how difficult they are to believe them when you see them, at least you say they're, they're within the realm of human possibility, right? I mean, it's inconceivable to me, but I guess with enough practice and mental prowess, Sure enough, you can solve a Rubik's Cube while juggling it. I suppose with enough endurance, you can strap a refrigerator on your back and in five hours, I suppose. But what Jesus does in Matthew 12 is no ordinary parlor trick, and it goes way beyond what any human can do. Everybody agrees what Jesus does in Matthew 12, this is in the realm of the spiritual. This is something that is otherworldly, and everybody's got the same question. How did he do it? How did he do that? Because you can explain away a lot with mental ability. You can explain a lot with like technology. You can explain a lot. Well, wow, he must have really practiced. You cannot explain what he does in Matthew 12, 22. The crowd wants to know how did he do it. Look at Matthew 12, verse 22. Do you see that? Then a demon oppressed man, your version may say demon possessed, a demon oppressed man who was blind and mute was brought to him. And he healed him so that the man spoke and saw. <laughs> and all the people were amazed. That's a very strong word in the Greek, astonished, put out of their place. We might say in modern English, they were out of their minds. No one could deny he did it, but they wondered how. And so they asked, can this be the son of David? Which, of course, is code word for Messiah. I mean, in the Old Testament, it prophesies that God alone can restore sight to the blind. Is this something that God did? Is Messiah here in our midst? Why does Matthew pick this particular miracle? I think it's symbolic. Let's consider this man for just a second. We're told he's blind, mute, 
and that the root of all this was that first part, he's demon oppressed. Let's talk about spiritual warfare and demon possession for just a second. Yes, there is a danger in overemphasizing the demonic, but there's also a danger in underemphasizing and underestimating the fact that we have an enemy. As C.S. Lewis says in the Screwtape Letters, there are two equal but opposite errors we may fall into when considering demons. One is to take an unhealthy interest in them, right? Fair enough. But the other is to deny their existence altogether. Either error pleases the demons. The Bible has no trouble talking about spiritual warfare. Jesus took the devil seriously. Paul in Ephesians 2 calls Satan the prince of the power of this air, the power of the air who's now at work in the sons of disobedience. In Ephesians 6, remember he says, we fight not against flesh and blood, but against the schemes of the devil, cosmic powers, spiritual forces of evil. In the book of John, Jesus called Satan the ruler of this world. And in our text today, Jesus is going to state plainly, there is a devil who has a kingdom, and that kingdom has power and influence in this world. So if you're a note taker, I'll go ahead and give you an outline at the very beginning. Here are three things you can write down. You can leave yourself a little space under each one. Now listen, I normally don't do this. I'm giving you the whole outline at the the start here, at the jump. Normally, you know, make you work for it. (laughs) But here it is. Two kingdoms, one choice, and a gracious warning. Two kingdoms, one choice. A gracious warning. And you need to brace yourself, especially for that third point. This text today contains, our passage contains what many Bible readers would say is the most frightening passage in the Bible. We're going to cover that today. (laughs) So, buckle up. (laughs) We'll get to it. The most frightening passage in the Bible, some say, it's here in this text today. So we'll get to that. But first, two kingdoms. Two kingdoms. The kingdom of God, which has come in Jesus Christ, and a kingdom that is opposed to the powers of God. Consider the state of this helpless man. Go back to verse 22. Demon oppressed, blind, and mute. You know, a lot of times we use the image of someone who doesn't know Jesus. We would say, well, they're, they're lost. And the Bible uses that image a lot. They're lost. They're helpless, sure enough. But here we go a step further. This man is not just lost. Consider he is a prisoner. He's owned, demon-possessed. A prison, you might say he's a POW. He's a prisoner of war. The enemy has captured him. And what has he done? Made him blind and mute. Blind and unable to speak. Is that not a mark of someone who is away from God? Someone who's not saved? That, that it's not just that they're lost. They're, they're a prisoner of war. And what has Satan done with his prisoner? First, blind them. One of Satan's strategies is to blind a man or a woman to their true spiritual condition. Uh, keep them in denial, uh, give them no self-awareness, make them blind to spiritual realities, and then mute. This is scary. Unable to speak, unable to cry out, unable to bless God, unable to praise God, unable to thank God, and watch this, unable to even cry out for help. You talk about helpless and hopeless, someone blind and unable to express their need, unable to even cry out, utterly helpless, utterly hopeless, and Jesus sets him free. When Christ set him free, they were astonished. They said, this isn't like learning how to juggle juggle Rubik's cubes. This isn't like training on how to carry a refrigerator in a marathon. This is otherworldly. And so quite naturally, they asked. They were amazed, and they asked, can this be the son of David? How else 
could he have done it? This obviously requires tremendous spiritual force. And so they're looking around going, this is it. This is otherworldly. The, 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 the spirit of God has broken through. Well, there's another answer given by another group. The opponents of Jesus. You remember, he has been uh, uh, receiving more and more hostility and opposition. The opponents of Jesus have already decided in their heart that Jesus was a lawbreaker. Why? Because remember from the past several sermons, if you've been following along in Matthew, he broke their traditions about the Sabbath. He broke their traditions about who he hangs out with. He's been eating with tax collectors and sinners. And because he broke all their man-made traditions, uh, they've just decided that that is, that is uh, before, like, we even consider the evidence, there's no way they think that Jesus could be the one from God. And so that because they've already decided ahead of time their answer about Jesus, they're certain of how he did it. And they accuse Jesus of witchcraft, of dabbling in the occult. That's right, of tapping into the power of Satan to perform this miracle. Look at how they say it in verse 24. But when the Pharisees heard it, remember the Pharisees were the religious leaders who are now opposed to Jesus. Many of them opposed to Jesus because he breaks their religious traditions. When the Pharisees heard it, they said, ah, it is only by Beelzebul, the prince of demons, that this man casts out demons. Now, Beelzebul was a slang word they used in the time of Jesus for Satan. Literally, it translates, Lord of the flies, Lord of the trash pile. And so this is what their, their, their sort of slang word, their nickname for Satan. And so they're saying Jesus uses satanic power to do this stuff. Now you think, how could anybody think that? How could anybody think that? Like, how could they see the evidence of this good thing Jesus did where he heals this man? He takes a man who's blind, mute, and demon-possessed, and he restores order, takes all that brokenness, and brings him peace and shalom. How could anybody see that evidence and be so stubborn and stuck in their decision that they're willfully blind to what's obvious right in front of them? Well, if you're going to honestly ask me, how could someone be so stubborn once they'd made up their mind about something that no amount of logic can change their mind? I would ask you to say that back to yourself. <laughs> You've never met anybody who once they've made up their mind about something, you cannot reason with them. No amount of logic is going to make them say, you know what, I've reconsidered my position on this. Right? I think I will change college football teams. <laughs> it's not going to happen. I've made up my mind. Before the ref makes the first call, I can tell you, if it goes against us, it's a bad call, right? You get my point. That's where the Pharisees were. They had hardened their hearts. They had already decided they were against Team Jesus. And so then they would just make the evidence. They would make their reasons fit whatever evidence they had to make. What's so obvious to you and me was unacceptable to the Pharisees. Now, I would like, there's a very interesting side note here. Notice they don't deny the miracle. Many commentators point this out. For those that are skeptical about the Bible, when they come to the Bible and say, well, did Jesus really do these things? It's stuff like this that proves Jesus did miracles. This proves it. Jesus did miracles. No, nobody denies, not the enemies of Jesus, not, the, not the, the friends of Jesus. Nobody denies that Jesus did something extraordinary. Can you at least grant me that? Nobody looks back. I mean, you have to deal with the evidence of Jesus. Even if you're skeptical about the Bible, you have to admit that what he did made people, you have to explain something. You've got to explain an empty tomb. You've got to explain this movement. You, you, nobody disagrees. Something incredible happened. 
And if you say, well, it's not that he was God in human flesh, then you have to come up with some other reason. The burden, when you come to the Bible, the burden of proof is on you to say there's not a loving creator, that this story is not true. Uh, uh, Several commentators put it like this. Nobody stands beside an ordinary house, just a plain old house. Nobody stands beside that and goes, how did they do it? Right? I don't know about you, but uh, uh, if you've ever seen me juggle, nobody's going to stand next to me and go, how does he do it? (laughs) Poorly, that's how. I got one Rubik's Cube, unsolved, that I occasionally drop. You understand, right? So obviously something is happening here that is otherworldly because Jesus is doing extraordinary deeds. And the Pharisees, knew if they could, the Pharisees knew if they could get Jesus accused of being part of the occult, of using Satan's power, of dabbling in the dark arts to do these miraculous deeds, that would be the end of Jesus. But Jesus knew what they were thinking. And he gives a very logical response. I think it's interesting. His response is logic. And he illustrates it with a story. Here's, here's what he doesn't say. He doesn't say, you guys should just believe in me blindly. You should just take a leap of faith. If you want to follow me, just take a blind leap. You know, did you know, again, another side note. Did you know leap of faith is nowhere in scripture? It comes out of Western civilization, but it doesn't come out of the Bible. Of course we need faith, but faith doesn't mean it's not reasonable. For example, I believe that God created the heavens and the earth. I believe that by faith, but it's also a lot more logical to me that something came from someone rather than something came from nothing. So I have faith, but I believe my faith is reasonable. I guess what I'm saying is, when you become a Christian, you don't have to check your brain at the door. Jesus doesn't ask for some sort of blind faith. He says, let's use logic here. He does a little bit of apologetics, I guess you could say. In fact, I follow that logic all the way to to Easter. I'm a Christian because of an event that happened 2,000 years ago. A dead Nazarene Jew named Jesus got up and walked out of a grave. And so to me, that's not blind faith. That historical fact happened. I want that. I want to follow him. So his response, my point is just simply, he uses logic. He uses logic and a little picture, a little parable. Here's the logic first, verse 25. Knowing their thoughts, he said to them, all right, let's think about this. You accuse me of using satanic power to cast out Satan. What he could have said is, that's ridiculous. But he was was kind. He said to them, every kingdom divided against itself is laid waste. And no city or house divided against itself will stand. And if Satan casts out Satan, he is divided against himself. How then will his kingdom stand? Jesus is saying, fellas, Satan is evil, but he's not stupid. You you can't run a home if people are in complete disunity, much less a company, much less an organization, much less a city, much less a kingdom. So if a kingdom is divided against itself, is that, what, is that Satan's new strategy? Tear down his own kingdom? Guys, it doesn't make sense on any logical level. Now, if, if a Pharisee were to say, well, no, but Satan is, what if Satan is willing to give up the battle to win the war? In other words, what if Satan is going to, like, give Jesus enough power to cast out a demon or two, you know? Jesus anticipates that uh, with verse 27. He's saying, well, the, well then what, what do you do with your own Pharisee exorcists? Well, they cast out demons. If I cast out demons by Beelzebul, which is what 
they were accusing of. By whom do your sons cast them out? Your sons, meaning your own Pharisee uh, uh, exorcists. Your own Pharisees who try to cast out demons. Do, is it, then that must apply to them too. Therefore, they will be your judges. <laughs> He's saying that means they are evidence against what you're saying. Is Satan's new strategy to somehow destroy himself by empowering all healers? Of course not. No, the only reason you Pharisees are saying I'm in league with Satan is because the alternative is the one thing you will not admit, and that's that the kingdom of God has come in me, in Jesus of Nazareth. He presses the point home clearly in verse 28. Here's what you don't want to admit, he's saying. But if it is by the Spirit of God that I cast out demons, then the one thing you do not want to admit has to be true, and it's staring you right here in the face. If it's by the Spirit of God, in other words, here's the real reason you don't want to admit it, because the truth is plain and obvious, then the kingdom of God has come. Admit it. It's the only thing that makes sense. I obviously have spiritual power. If it didn't come from the enemy, that leaves only one alternative. There are only two kingdoms. So let me give you a picture, he says, of what has happened. Verse 29. Here's a little picture of what's happened, of what I've done. Or how can someone enter a strong man's house and plunder his goods unless he first binds the strong man? Then indeed he may plunder his house. Now what is this a reference to? I believe this is a reference. Can you remember way back after Jesus' baptism when he was tempted by Satan in the wilderness? Do you remember this? He went three rounds. He fasted 40 days, and then Satan came and tempted him. Do you remember this? He gave him three temptations. You might think of a boxer going three rounds with the enemy. And here's what we know. Satan has had pretty much free reign since the fall. He's been walking around this earth. That's why the Bible talks about him as prince of this air, prince of this world. He's been walking around this earth, strutting around like he owns the place. If you think of the earth as his house, it's like he owns the house. Satan, for thousands of years, has been the biggest, baddest, strong man in the house. And why not? Caesars can't stop him. Kings can't stop him. Satan has been tying up sinners, blinding sinners And plundering the souls of men. Prophets and priests and emperors have come and gone. And still he remains the strong man. Now, something happened. At that showdown in the desert. Can you imagine? Fresh, his hair still wet from the baptism. He's just been anointed by the Holy Spirit. He knows he's on a mission. He fasts for 40 days and 40 nights. And Satan thinks, oh, this one's going to be easy. Because the last time I had a big showdown like this, the last time all the deck was stacked against me, I had to get Adam and Eve to eat the, one tree, to eat the fruit of the one tree in the garden that God told them not to. And that was a tough tough task. Why? Because they could eat from any other tree in the garden. They were surrounded by a lush garden. They were in paradise. They had everything. How do you tempt the man who has everything? It was difficult, but I found a way. I convinced him that he didn't, in fact, have everything, that God was holding out on him, and I got Adam and Eve to fall. I got Adam and Eve to fall for temptation. So that was difficult. This one's going to be a layup. This one's going to be easy. Why? Because this second Adam, he's in a wilderness. He's in a desert. 
So when I, I, I know what I'm going to hit him with first, turn these stones into bread. This one's going to be easy. Why? Because he's used to being a strong man. So imagine his surprise when this second Adam doesn't fall so easily. Round one goes to Jesus. You know the story. So he ups it with another temptation. Round two goes to Jesus. Round three is the knockout blow. And here's what we know. Like if you read the Gospel of Mark, it's very interesting. Uh, the... the uh, um, that temptation happens pretty early on, and here's, what, here's what's very interesting. You see Satan and Jesus locked in this temptation battle. After that battle, you never see directly, you never see Satan show up again in the Gospels. You see his demons, and there's one and only one emotion every time Jesus encounters the demons. The demons are fear, they're scared to death. Every time a demon encounters Jesus, after that temptation, it goes something like this. Are you here to torment us, Jesus of Nazareth? We know who you are. It's funny. The disciples who have been walking with Jesus cannot figure out who Jesus is, but the demons do. You know, for the first, chapter, for the first eight chapters of Mark, nobody can figure out who Jesus is except the demons. But they know, and they're scared to death. And you never hear from Satan again after that moment. Do you know why I think you never hear from Satan again? Because it seems he's tied up. Something happened. I don't know what, but something happened in that showdown in the desert. I believe at a spiritual cosmic level, the obedience of the sinless, spotless Lamb of God was so powerful that it somehow tied up Satan and Jesus starts walking through his house taking everything that Satan had taken. He's just taking it back. Hey, Satan had this guy uh, uh, blind, boom, he can see. Satan had this person demon oppressed, healed, freed, just helping himself to life, healing, doing miracles, restoring the shalom, peace of God. Why? The strong man has been bound. And what he's saying to the Pharisees is, that has happened in your midst. The Spirit of God is here. The kingdom of God is here. That's why my message has been, the kingdom of God is here. I have bound this quote-unquote strong man, and I'm here to plunder his house. I'm here to take back that which is rightfully God's. The point is Satan and the powers of evil are strong. There are two kingdoms, but Jesus is stronger still. The Israelites have just seen the proof. They've seen this pitiful man unable to see, unable to speak, unable to travel, unable to cry out for help. Satan had captured this man. Jesus, having bound the strong man, has now set him free. That means there's only one conclusion. When Jesus enters the world with power, God himself has entered the world with power. The process of restoration and renewal has begun. Two kingdoms. And that leads to one choice. One choice. If I had to pick one verse that I would say is the main point of this entire passage and that summarizes everything I'm trying to say today, it would be verse 30. There's one choice. Jesus says, whoever is not with me is against me, and whoever does not gather with me scatters. Verse 30 is a good reminder that neutrality is not an option. In this conflict between two kingdoms, neutrality is impossible. To be against Jesus, hear me now, to be against Jesus is to be on Satan's side. You cannot, you cannot gather and scatter simultaneously. I think the image here is of flocks and herds. 
I don't know a lot about flocks and herds, but I certainly can understand that if I'm out (coughs) sowing some seed, I can't gather a bunch of seed together and scatter at the same time. To gather (laughs) is not to scatter. To scatter is not to gather. There's no neutral ground. Neutrality is not an option. Why is that so important? I think a lot of us uh, imagine, we, don't, we, we might not necessarily say this out loud, but a lot of us imagine that we can sort of hang out in kind of a middle ground, you know? We say, well, I don't want to be, I don't know that I want to be all in on Jesus. I don't want to be a fanatic when it comes to my relationship with Jesus, but I would never want to be against him. I wouldn't want to be against Jesus, so I'm just going to be like, just kind of a middle ground. Whoever is not with me is against me. There's no middle ground. There's no neutral. I I, I want to be gracious to anyone who might be considering the claims of Christianity. Certainly, I, I would agree, people need time. And if you're considering the evidence for Christianity, good. And, and you may have honest questions that you need answers to, fine. But you've got to grant me, Jesus is implying you can't stay on the fence for long. Either you will yield to the still small voice of the Holy Spirit, or eventually, little by little, you'll close your ears and harden your heart. This, this verse 30, can you put that back up there? Whoever is not with me is against me. Whoever does not gather with me scatters. Ponder for a second what this means in your daily life. Uh, uh, little decisions. You know, it, well, I, I could make this decision and it's, it's the good decision. It's the right decision. I guess that would be for Jesus. Or if I don't, that's sort of neutral. No, that is a vote against Jesus. The old time commentators had no trouble. They, Here's Barclay. If our presence does not strengthen the church, then our absence is weakening it. Barclay is saying, I'm not saying, he's saying, (laughs) that on a Sunday morning, it's not like if I go to church, that's a vote for Jesus, and if I stay home, it's neutral. He's saying if you go, it's a vote for, and if you stay home, you are literally choosing to vote against the church of Jesus Christ. Whoever's not with me is against me. That has some teeth to it, doesn't it? There's no neutral ground. So if I were across the table from you and we were having a serious discussion about your soul and about salvation, and if you said to me, well, I don't know, I'm not for Jesus, does this mean what you're saying? I'm against him. What should I do? If we were having that discussion, it was just you and me in a room, and I was across the table from you, and you said, what do I do? I would say to you, go to him now. Here's why. Jesus is the most incredible, the most unusual kind of enemy. He's the only enemy I know of who seeks to save his enemies and make them his forever friends. You say, how do I do it? You might pray something like this. You might just go to the Lord and say, Lord, I've seen enough evidence that you're powerful and good. You're the son of God and savior. I admit my doubts and my uncertainties remain. I'll seek answers over time, but this I know. I am for you, Jesus, not against you. I wanna be on your side now and forever, amen. Open your heart up to God. Go to him, pray that simple prayer. Somebody in here right now this morning may need to pray that. Why? Because there's two kingdoms, one choice, and neutrality is not an option. Go to him. Cry out to him. In the end, you must decide about Jesus. Is he a liar? Is he a lunatic? Is all this made up? Or is he the Lord? 
If you see the evidence in the word of God, if you know you need to give your life over to him, and if you deliberately choose to just attribute all this to some sort of satanic power, what is clearly accomplished by the power of God, that's blasphemy against the Holy Spirit of God. To willingly, thoughtfully, knowingly close your heart off when Jesus is calling. Two kingdoms, one choice. And that leads finally to what I'm calling a gracious warning. A gracious warning. Remember, there are two kingdoms, one choice, and here Jesus closes with a gracious warning to help us make the right choice. It's a very famous warning, and to many people, this is the most fearful thing in the Bible. Can you predict what it's going to be? Verse 31, therefore I tell you, every sin and blasphemy will be forgiven people, but the blasphemy against the Spirit will not be forgiven And whoever speaks a word against the Son of Man will be forgiven, but whoever speaks against the Holy Spirit will not be forgiven, either in this age or in the age to come. Ah, yes. We come now to the topic of blasphemy against the Holy Spirit, often called the unforgivable sin because of that will not be forgiven, the unpardonable sin. You know, it's the only sin in the Bible that Jesus says will not be forgiven. Let's unpack this. First and most importantly, anytime we seek to understand a verse, whether it's a difficult verse or one we think is simple to understand, we must always start with the context. The Bible is the best commentary on the Bible. Scripture is how we interpret Scripture. So what's the context here? Well, the context is, the question is, how did he do it? And the Pharisees are attributing to Satan what is accomplished by the power of God. Got it? If they persist in doing this, they will reach a place where their heart is so hardened that forgiveness is no longer possible. Does that make sense? That's what the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit is. So I thought to be super clear, I would put up here a definition of blasphemy against the Holy Spirit. This is, I think, Dan uh, Doriani's uh, uh, definition. Blasphemy against the Spirit. Blasphemy against the Spirit, if you want to take a photo of this with your phone or if you are, are a fast note taker. I would say is the sober, clear-minded, right? This is not an accidental sin you can commit. This is deliberate. Sober, clear-minded, deliberate rejection of Jesus as a very agent of evil, despite full knowledge of his work and in the face of the Spirit's full testimony to him. I'll leave that up there for a second. So, uh, unpack. This is a person who's heard the gospel proclaimed with clarity and power. He has watched Christians live good lives, yet this person hates Jesus and Christianity and views it as wickedness and deceit. There are many people in the world today who would say Christianity is a cause of great evil, and if we could get rid of Christianity and get rid of religion, the world would be a better place. They think of Jesus as being full of wickedness and deceit. This person has heard the good news, understood the gospel, and yet despises it. We see now why this sin is unpardonable. How can someone turn to Christ and be saved when he is rejected, seen all the evidence and rejected it as a terrible evil. That's what Jesus says, says the Pharisees are coming dangerously close to doing. The continual rejection of Jesus, let me say it again, the continual rejection of Jesus leads to a point where forgiveness is not possible. Why? Because Jesus is the one necessary for forgiveness. Does that make sense? The reason this is unforgivable is because Jesus is the one who's necessary for forgiveness. So determining that that is no longer an option, he's the only option for forgiveness. So when you cut that off, you have no other option for forgiveness. 
Now, why do I bring this up? I, I hope this brings a measure of comfort to sincere Christians. I have met sincere Christians who are afraid that they might commit this sin. Hear me clearly. A Christian kept by God's power cannot commit this sin. It's not that you will not. It's that you cannot. Matthew Henry's long-standing pastoral counsel is still appropriate. He wrote years ago, quote, those who fear they've committed this sin give a good sign that they have not. You see why? If you're someone who's committed the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit, you won't care about your soul. You've passed the point of no return. You've thought yourself so wise, so much smarter than others, you've hardened your heart to a point where it cannot and will not repent, no matter how obvious the evidence. That's the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit that Jesus is warning about. Okay, you may say, um, I see the warning part, but you called it a gracious warning. Gracious implies grace. Where's the grace in this warning? It's gracious for two reasons. Look again at these verses. Will you put them up there? Look again carefully. It's gracious for two reasons. First, Jesus doesn't say the Pharisees have already committed this sin. He is warning them about it. And that's why I think it's gracious. Wouldn't you agree? No matter how severe and how harsh the warning, if it saves someone from eternal damnation, is it not gracious? Is it gracious for a person out of nowhere to tackle me? I mean, just level me like a linebacker. I would say that is not gracious. But if I learned later that I was in grave danger and that a car I didn't see and I couldn't hear it, it was electric. <laughs> Just came up right behind me. I didn't hear it. And somebody with great force tackles me and saves my life. I would call that a gracious tackle. Do we not have here the Lord Jesus using the harshest language he can? Why? Because the Pharisees are in the most dangerous state they can be in. And Jesus is the most loving one that has ever been. So then it is a gracious warning. It's as if he's saying, listen, your heart is in danger of becoming hard. Now's the time to recognize it's the Holy Spirit in me doing these works. I'm patient toward you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. So the very fact that Jesus gives this warning before it's too late is why I call it a gracious warning. But there's another even greater reason why it's gracious. At this time, the musicians can prepare to lead us in a time of invitation and response. We'll draw this matter to a close, but I want you to see it's gracious because of Jesus pointing out just how many sins can be forgiven. If you see in both verse 31 and 32, twice, blasphemy against the Spirit will not be forgiven, but twice he also says, will be for forgiven. Look at verse 31. You know what the most gracious word in this verse may be? Circle that word, Every. Therefore, I tell you, every sin and blasphemy will be forgiven, people. He even says, listen, speaking against me, that's what the Pharisees are doing. Even that can be forgiven. Just don't get to a place where you reject the Holy Spirit's call persistently over and over. You'll be hardened. But every sin and blasphemy will be forgiven. Has that struck you? Do you realize how deep his forgiveness goes? Every sin will be forgiven. Can you imagine when we get to glory, all that Jesus has forgiven, all that he saved us from, every sin will be forgiven. What about that DUI? Every sin will be forgiven. What about cheating on that history test? Every sin will be forgiven. 
What about getting your teenage girlfriend pregnant? Every sin will be forgiven. What about the abortion? Every sin will be forgiven. What about lying under oath? Every sin will be forgiven. What about all the backbiting? Every sin will be forgiven. What about the affair? Every sin will be forgiven. What about experimenting with homosexuality? Every sin will be forgiven. What about loving money more than I love God? Every sin. What about murder? Every sin will be forgiven. How do we know? 1 Timothy 1.15. The saying is trustworthy and deserving of all acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. You know who said that? The Apostle Paul. You know what he was? He was a Pharisee. He said he was a Pharisee and a son of Pharisees. I wonder if he read that right out of Matthew 12. He was so zealous for the purity of what he thought were the traditions of the elders that he went so far as to persecute the church and even have Christians killed. And that's why he says, this is a faithful saying and worthy of all adaptation that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. And then he adds this, of whom I am chief. It's as if he's saying, I'm living proof. His love is great. It's not too late. There are two kingdoms, one choice. Heed this gracious warning and hear the good news of the gospel. If you hear his voice today, respond to him. Don't harden your heart. Why? Because Jesus Christ came into this world to save sinners. Let's pray. Oh God, grant that you would forgive us of trying to wiggle and squirm our way into some sort of neutral middle ground that doesn't exist. We recognize today the cold hard truth that to be for you is not to be against you and to not to be for you is to be against you. God grant that that might convict us. And Lord, if there's anybody here who has not yet made that one choice, God grant that today would be that day you touch them, you speak to them, Holy Spirit, only you can bring new life. You regenerate souls today, oh God, as the gospel calls gone forth. You have died, rose again on the third day. You came into the world to save sinners. And God, we pray for that salvation here and for believers to be strengthened in this gospel good news. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. I hope the invitation is clear. Would you-